right, I love that. Love that walk-up music. All right. Hey, welcome, everybody. Um, my name is Bob. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, if you're new here and I haven't had a chance, I see a couple of visitors. I haven't had a chance to talk to you. I am going to be hanging out for a few hours, cleaning and doing different things. But after service, I'd love to get a chance to just connect with you and talk to you, answer any questions you may have, anything like that. Um, before we get going, there are a couple things I just felt... Um, that I wanted to bring up. Number one is, is you heard Scott talk about uh, Sandy, Sandy White, who is a fixture, although she's not here. Um, she is our leading prayer warrior for this church. She intercedes for this church all the time, and right now she uh, is in recovery. The reason she's not here, she was in the hospital last week uh, having a couple different procedures, and she's recovering from those, recovering very nicely. Praise God for that. Um, but um, that's why she's not here, just giving a little, little extra time. Sandy and Jim, I know you're out there watching us, so our prayers are with you. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out, since it's Super Bowl Sunday, I'm not going to do the whole traditional how many Chiefs fans, how many uh, 49ers fans we have here, because that just causes division. Let's, not, let's all just be Jesus fans today, right? Um, but on the subject of the Super Bowl and being Jesus fans, I don't know if you're like me. This is my little PSA, right? This is not Pastor Bob from the pulpit, but um, I can't watch award shows anymore. I can't watch the Oscars or the Grammys. or I can't watch any of those because it's all just, yeah, it's just all that, right? So I don't even know how to say it, but you know where I'm going with this. The other night, though, uncharacteristically, I watched an awards show for the NFL. It's called the NFL Honors. I don't know if any of you saw it. But let me tell you what stood out to me in that. Nearly every single award recipient who got up there, whether it was man of the year, defensive player of the year, whatever it was, they got up, and when they were given the microphone to give their acceptance speech, the vast majority of them said, first off, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You will not hear that at the Grammys or the Oscars, or you will not. So no matter what you feel about the NFL, I know years ago it was divisive because of some of the things that were going on, and even today there's going to be people who have problems with different things. Let me tell you, the people who play in the NFL, the vast majority of them, are very open about their Lord and Savior Jesus, and I love to hear that on the biggest platforms. So... Uh, that's just my little PSA. I will be watching, of course, after our wedding rehearsal. Um, I'll be watching. <laughs> I'll try not to have it on my phone as I'm doing the wedding rehearsal. But anyway, um, okay. All right. So let's get on. Let's get on with the message. Um, we are. Um, we're in the series called "Battle for the Blessing." It's a. It's a study in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and the reason we're doing them both together, of course, is because. Uh, number one, most scholars believe they were written by the same guy, the prophet Ezra, uh, prophet Ezra. but um, also they dovetail together in the story that they're trying to tell, and there's so much that we can learn. I know it's an Old Testament book, but there's so much that we can learn, and one of the biggest things that I'm continually learning through this is that you can be 100% within God's will. You can be doing what God told you to do. You can be following all of the blessings and the path that he's laid out for you, and you're still going to encounter resistance. You're still going to have to fight for it. 
because every single step of the way on that blessed chosen path that God has for you, there's someone standing right next to you that wants to steal that away from you. And so it's always going to be a battle for the blessing. So that's what we're talking about. Ezra and Nehemiah were very much in God's will and the things they were doing and still encountered resistance and difficulties all along the way. Being a follower of Jesus, being within God's will, listening to the guidance of the Holy Spirit is no guarantee that your path is going to be smooth and easy. In fact, in many ways, we're promised in the Bible, it's going to be just the opposite. You will have trouble. I tell you, if you're not having trouble and everything is smooth sailing, it's probably because you're not making any waves for the devil in your life. You're going right where he wants you to, and he'll leave you alone. As soon as you start encountering resistance and waves, you might know that you're on to something. So that's what, we're, that's what we're talking about. Last week, if we're going to kind of recap what we talked about last week, was an accounting um, of everyone who was chosen to come back and restore the temple. It was that first wave of, of returnees who came back. Um, and we saw that while we should expect that God would correct us for our errors as he did when he allowed Babylon to come in and just destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple and cart off all the riches and cart off all the people, take them to Babylon. That's God's correction. And if we call ourselves people of God, we should not only be open to, but we should welcome and expect God's correction when we stray from the course. That's how that works. But also a loving and gracious God along with that correction will already have a plan of restoration in place. That restoration, in large part, requires our repentance and our acceptance of his restoration and moving then towards, towards that calling that he had for us. That's what we talked about last week. We talked about the historical and the cultural importance of rebuilding Solomon's temple, how much that meant to people. And I want to point out again, I pointed it out last week, but it bears repeating. When we talk about God's correction, it's not punishment. It's correction. God is not punishing you for your sins. Jesus Christ already took care of that for us. He took that upon himself. But Hebrews 12.10 says, He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. That's why God disciplines us. So we need to understand that. And if we share in his holiness through Jesus, um, then we can call ourselves God's chosen people. And that's what that's about. So the last verse of, of chapter 2 that we talked about last week found this special remnant um, going to Jerusalem and then heading out to their respective cities that they lived in. Not all of them lived in Jerusalem. They lived in cities all over uh, all over Judah and all over the region. So they go back that. That was Ezra 270. It read like this, remember, now the priests and the Levites and some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their cities and all Israel in their cities. So they've come there, they've seen Jerusalem, and they've dispersed, and they've gone back to their homes to try and rebuild their lives and rebuild their homes and rebuild whatever's left after all that time away. So this week, we're going to be in chapter 3 of Ezra. So Ezra 3, we're going to do the whole thing. That's, that's 13 verses, 1 through 13. And so where we are, we see this, this carefully chosen remnant. Remember, these were all direct descendants of the last 
keepers of the temple, the last people who were responsible for the upkeep and the care and, and the protection of the temple, and now they're back. We see them ready to get down to business of restoring the temple, and with it, most importantly, proper worship. So that's where they are right now as we start out. And we're going to break this chapter into a couple different chunks to kind of make sense of it. There's going to be a lot of scripture today. Um, I love when the scripture backs this up. And so we're going to take a couple of these little hyperlink journeys that I call them. Gabe likes that term, so I'm going to keep using it. Talk to her if you don't like that term. Um, we're going to do that, and, and we're going to try and make sense of it. So first of all, we're going to Ezra 3, 1 to 5. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read that first chunk all entirely and just kind of follow along in your head. I use the NASB, New American Standard Bible, so if you have a different version, you might find that some of the wording is slightly different. Um, but here we go. Ezra 3, 1 to 5. Now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one person to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brothers, rose up and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundations because they were terrified of the people of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They also celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the prescribed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance, as each day required. And afterward, there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moon and for the appointed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated, and from everyone who offered a voluntary offering of the Lord. Okay, that kind of just gives you a general picture. We're going to take it apart, but the first thing... The first thing that I need to point out when it says the first day of the seventh month, these specially chosen, hand-picked keepers of the temple, freed from captivity and, and given all that they needed for the journey to go back to their home and rebuild it, they've been in their homeland for seven months already without lifting a finger to do anything with the temple. They just got back there and took a look at the temple and said, okay, we need to we definitely need to do something here, but first, let's go home and make sure our house is in order. So they go back home to wherever their cities are. They're rebuilding infrastructure and roads and redigging their wells and anything that was damaged. Because um, remember, it's been, it's been unoccupied for, for quite some time. The seventh month, though, was not just chosen by random. It wasn't just like, okay, it's about time. What do you think? And it happened to be the seventh month. The seventh month, they didn't just wake up one day and say, it's about time we get started. It was a very significant month. So let's look at the verse first, Ezra 3, 1. I've got it on screen. Now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one person to Jerusalem. All right, so this is, this is our first hyperlink journey, all right? So buckle up, stay with me for just a second. First of all, a question. Now, Kayla is not here. She's busy for doing something, but she'd be my Bible nerd I would normally look at and, and ask this question, but thankfully we've still got John here to, to represent. Can anybody tell me the significance of the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar? Anyone? I heard somebody whisper festivals. Festivals, yeah, so 
Tabernacles, exactly, that's it. This would, so this would have been, on our calendar, September, October of 537 B.C. And on the Hebrew calendar, that month is called Tisri. That's, that's what it says on the Hebrew calendar. And it corresponds to September, October. The first day of the seventh month signaled the beginning of the traditional of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the single most celebratory and joyous festival or celebration that they had. They had Passover, of course, and, and a number of other festivals. But specifically, Tabernacles is, is just a joyous feast. That was actually set up and instituted a long time ago. It was set up and instituted during the first exodus while they were traveling through the desert. God gave that message to Moses, who then gave it to his people. And if you remember, Passover was actually instituted before they were even freed. God's telling them, you're about to be freed. I want you to remember this because you're going to be celebrating this for the rest of your lives. But Deuteronomy 16, 13 to 15 says, You shall celebrate the feasts of booths for seven days when you have gathered in from your threshing floor and your wine vat. And you shall rejoice in your feast, you, your son, your daughter, your male and female slaves, the Levite, the stranger, the orphan, and the widow who are in your towns. For seven days you shall celebrate a feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. So they started celebrating this Feast of Tabernacles, otherwise known as Feast of Booths, while they were in the exodus, they're traveling through the desert, setting up tents and setting up the tabernacle every time they stopped. Now, in Leviticus, it actually includes the, the phrase, a reminder to rest by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. So usually that would be the shofar. So a lot of times if you see the Feast of Tabernacles or, or booths um, celebrated, you'll see uh, the shofar as a kind of a centerpiece when they blow that. We should have had a show. If I'd have thought ahead, we'd have had a shofar during worship. But um, so as they begin this process of rebuilding what was left, which wasn't much, of Solomon's temple, they remember their deliverance from Egypt to begin with. And they're thinking about their deliverance from exile in Babylon. And then they look back at when this was all instituted by God. Read Leviticus 23 if you want more on that specific story. We won't go into that today. Um, but it celebrates God's provision for the harvest, for at one point it was manna. Um, it, all of God's provision, it celebrates all those things. It's also called the Feast of Ingathering, um, Feast of Booths. Um, it's, a, it's also known by the term Sukkot, if you've ever heard that. Sukkot is actually plural of booth. So when you say feast of booths, plural of booths is, is Sukkot. Here's, here's what you see, and you still see these. I don't know how well you can see that, but basically it's just a flimsy kind of a tent structure that is set up. And you still see those with people that, that celebrate Sukkot or celebrate booths. That's what it means when a booth. When you hear a booth, you're thinking of like at a trade show. Everybody's got their little their booth. But it's, it's basically a tent. 
And this is kind of similar to what they would set up as they were traveling across the desert during the Exodus. They would set that up and they would live in it. They would have meals in it. And to this day, when they celebrate this, typically there's a feast. You can see there's a table and people are feasting in there. But some people will take it to the next level when they're celebrating that and will actually live in that during that time. So that's what it's about. And, and the singular of that is called a sukkah. And that's, so that's what that is, is temporary dwelling. And they would just live in that during the harvest. So the Feast of Tabernacles, what it is, it was celebrated on another significant occasion, specifically that regards what we're doing here. And this is why they chose that first day of the seventh month. The other significant time, obviously they celebrated every year, but it actually coincided with the dedication of Solomon's temple when it was built the first time. When they were dedicating that temple and they were taking the Ark of the Covenant and they were placing it from where it was into Solomon's temple, the first thing they did is celebrate Feast of Booths. That's the first thing they did. So the significance of that, here we are, we're getting ready, we've, we, we've built the altar and we're getting ready now. Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate just like they did when Solomon's temple was completed. Now, they're, they're a little bit early because they're on the beginning process, not the end, but they're still celebrating the remembrance of, of what was. So that's what they're doing. Now, it talks about that. Um, it talks about that in 1 Kings 8, 1 to 2. I'll read it for you just because it's, it's interesting. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' households of the sons of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, that is Zion, so that all men of Israel assembled themselves before King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, that is the seventh month. I want to point out one thing because a lot of people look at Scripture and they'll see, okay, um, the seventh month is called Tisri. It's not called Ethanim. So is this, is this an error? Is this some sort of a, of a contradiction? It's not. The seventh month called Ethanim before the Babylonian exile. That's what they called it. After they started calling it Tisri. If we have any, any um, scholars, you can tell me why. I honestly don't know why, but I can tell you that's how that happened. So it's not an error. So back to our story. This, this is a logical and significant time to rebuild the temple, to start that work. It's logical. That's why they picked that time. But not before the party. They're going to have a party now to celebrate tabernacles, and then they're going to go into it. So that's the end of our hyperlink journey. Now you've got a little background on why they chose the first day of the seventh month. Let's get back into Ezra 3.2. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brothers rose up and built an altar of the, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So Zerubbabel... If you remember, Zerubbabel was really the rightful leader of Judah. He was, he was in the line of, of David, um, and, and Jehoiakim, who was the second to the last ruler, king of Judah, before he was sorry, um, distracted out the window. Are you guys distracted out the window at all? It's easy to do. But Zerubbabel could never be king of Israel. He could be governor for a couple reasons. Number one is that it was still considered a province of Persia. 
So they couldn't have another king there. They had, a, they had a governor. They installed Zerubbabel as governor. But also since he was descended from David and Jehoiakim, he should have. He was in the rightful line to be king. But there was this little problem of the sins that his forefathers brought on, which are actually the ones that brought on the destruction of Jerusalem to begin with. Read Jeremiah 22 if you want that story. But he's, he can't be king, but he can be governor. So that's where they are. Jeshua, by the way, is also called Joshua. And he was the son of the high priest who is at the time of the exile. So it's, it's a nice bookend there. So we now have a new ruler in, in Zerubbabel. We have a new high priest in Joshua. And now it's time to get down to business. It's time to make this happen. This is what we're here for. Ezra 3.3. So they set up the altar on its foundation because they were terrified of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. Verses 4 and 5 go on to detail some of the various feasts that are going on. Here's, a, here's kind of a picture. This is uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel setting up. You can see the little altar on the left in the ruins of what was left of Solomon's temple. That's kind of what the scene would look like. They're just standing there in the middle of nothing. It hasn't been rebuilt yet. It's still just ruins and rubble. But they're building, a, building an altar, and they're starting the process of offerings, the, offer, the process of proper worship to the Lord their God. So that's what they're doing right now. <clears throat> when we go in and look at where it says they were terrified of the peoples of the lands, remember this land has been unoccupied, essentially unoccupied by them, for 50, 60, 70 years. And so what do you think happens at that time? You get nomads, you get squatters, you get people that come in. And, and it wasn't widespread, but enough to where the people, including their neighboring nations, didn't like to have them back. They like to have that free reign around there. So when it says they were terrified of the people of the lands... They're just random, again, nomadic groups and squatters everywhere. And, they're, and what they're doing now, up until now, they've just been working on their homes. They've gone back to their homes. They've kicked out whoever was there, if somebody was there. Um, they're, they're cleaning up. They're rebuilding. They're restoring their lives and their friendships and their neighbors and basically getting life back to normal in this new place. Many, many of them have never even been there to begin with. It's just their ancestral home. And they're back there now. They're not bothering anybody. They're back in this place, but they're not really, on a big scale, bothering anybody. Rebuilding the altar was their first sign of putting down, planting that flag and saying, we are here. This is going to be rededicated to the God of Israel, and this is our home, and we are starting this right now. That's their first act of formal defiance to the people who are around them and just that authority saying, we are here, this is ours, and it belongs to God. Somebody needs, there's someone here, maybe several someones, because the Lord really put it on my heart, but needs to hear, needs to hear this. Until you try to step up and take authority over that blessing that God has given you, you plant your flag and you take authority over what God has given you, until that happens, your enemies will leave you alone. And it will be smooth sailing. But as soon as you begin to claim that blessing, 
take authority over it, and walk in it, you'll find out who your enemies are. And that's what's happening to them here. We'll see that unfold in the next couple chapters. But so they begin the process of rebuilding the temple in earnest, for real. Ezra 3, 6, and 7. Again, I'll read some of the longer ones to you. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrrhenians to bring cedar and Le- cedar. <clears throat> to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission they had been given King Cyrus of Persia. Now, if you've ever heard, anybody ever heard of cedars of Lebanon? Most of us have kind of maybe heard that phrase. Here's what, here's what a cedar of Lebanon looks like. It's in a mountainous region in Lebanon, still to this day, but although the, the forests are getting smaller and smaller, but it's well known for being exceptionally strong. They only grow in the mountains from three to 6,000 feet. That's their, their mountainous, and that's the only place that they grow in Lebanon. They're decay-resistant. They're aromatic. They're super strong. They're, they're well-known, even to this day, but especially then, a symbol of luxury and wealth. And so that's what they're doing, and they're importing these. They're importing them from Lebanon. They're sailing them south down the coast of the Mediterranean down into Joppa, where they're, or to Tyre and Sidon, that's where they come to, and then they took them down further to Joppa, which is closer to, uh, to Jerusalem. Now, you ever heard of Tyre and Sidon in Scripture? Interesting story about Tyre and Sidon. They're part of Phoenicia, right? They're not part of Judah or Israel. They're part of, of Phoenicia, and they were friendly-ish, to Judah. Friendly-ish. They traded and they did commerce and things like that. They've always been very, very independent, two very, very independent kind of nation states. Um, But when Judah was attacked by Babylon, they basically stood back and and not only did they not help, but they kind of reveled in it. Said, ah, you guys are getting yours now. Where's your God now? Read Ezekiel 26 to 28 to find out how that went for Tyre and Sidon. I'll give you a hint. It's epic. You should read it. But back to our story, Tyre and Sidon needed to be bribed pretty generously in order to allow that import of cedars, knowing that it was going to be used to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. That's why it talks about that, and it's important to know that. When we look at how stubborn and how, and how resistant and how just kind of antagonistic to everything that, that the Jews wanted to do, it's even more stunning when we look at how, when we read in, G, in uh, Matthew, and I think it's also in Luke, where Jesus sends and even goes to Tyre and Sidon. And he's there, and he's including the Gentiles that live there in that covenant promise. And he's saying, you need to come. You need to hear the gospel and come to me. The fact that he is spreading that, you can understand when you read the scripture about how some of the disciples were a little reluctant to go there. These guys have been a thorn in our side all the time, and now, Jesus, you're saying, let's go there and open our arms to them. It makes it an even bigger thing when you know the backstory of what's going on. So, 
think about this, though. Gathering these materials, especially the cedars and all the things that they needed, was a little bit harder than today, just going down to Home Depot and loading up your truck and coming over. From that altitude, harvesting those cedars was exceptionally difficult, and then you had to take them from there down to the coast, load them on ships, take them south, unload them, import them, put them on another ship, take them further south to Joppa and unload them and then cart them the 30-ish miles inland to Jerusalem. It was a big deal. There was a lot going on. It took them almost a year and a half to gather all these materials before they could start then actually rebuilding in proper. So that's where we are. We fast forward between uh, Ezra 7 and Ezra 8 we jump ahead about a year and a half. So Ezra 3.8. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem began to work and appointed the Levites, who were 20 years old and upward, to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. That actually 20 years up, or 20 years old and up, was actually decreed by King David. He said, those 20 years old and up will, shall be the ones responsible. And so they're following what David had put in place. Now, when the foundation was finished, so they're just building the foundation now. Foundation is done. It's time to celebrate. Ezra 3.10. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. Ezra 3.11 on screen here. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his favor is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout of joy when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But, there's always a but. There's always, I mean that in both ways, there's always somebody in the crowd who's not happy with what's just happened. This great blessing, we're making wonderful progress, here we are, we've been set free, God has brought us here, he's provided for us, we've got all the materials from Lebanon, which is a feat in itself, and we've got the foundations laid. How incredible is that? You would think everybody would be celebrating together, but... There's always those people. Ezra 3.12. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. He's talking about here the people who had seen it. The people who were older, the elders who had actually seen Solomon's temple in all of its glory how incredible it was, how shining bright with all the precious metals and jewels and, and all the gold articles that were inside and just how incredibly opulent and massive showpiece that Solomon's temple was. And they're not happy because they're comparing the two. The last verse, verse 13, just tells us that the shouts of joy and the shouts of anguish were so loud that they mixed together and no one could even tell the difference, who is shouting for joy and who is shouting in anguish. 
The temple had been destroyed less than a full generation ago, so there's still plenty of these guys who had seen it. And here's what they were hoping. Here's why they were upset. It's not that they're focusing on the joy that this is happening. We're actually rebuilding it. They chose to focus on the other end of it. They were hoping that this structure would again restore their capital city and the temple to the prominence that it deserved. And with it, maybe along with that, some more of God's favor. See, they thought that God's favor was dependent on having the most opulent, luxurious temple that they possibly could, and they were worried that this one wasn't going to get the job done. The second thing, this new temple was going to be nowhere near as spectacular as Solomon's temple. Nowhere near. Was this even a fitting home for God to begin with? And then the third, and maybe the biggest thing, the Shekinah glory of God. The incredible glory of God was not in this temple. The main reason for that is because neither was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had been stolen, taken to Babylon, and at some point in there, it disappeared. No one knows where it is now. And so now, to them, God and his spirit and all those important things that belonged to the Ark of the Covenant were no longer a part of this new temple. It was just a building, no matter what they did. It was just going to be a building. So these men needed some encouragement to understand because these are the leaders. If you have these leaders, the elders and all these older people, the people that you're looking up to for advice and for encouragement, if they're disappointed in this thing, everybody else is eventually going to be disappointed in it also. It may not even stand to get finished because people aren't excited about it anymore. So they needed some encouragement. And God offered that encouragement. He spoke it to the prophet Haggai. And Haggai came and said this to the men. He received this from God, and he said this. This is Haggai 2, verses 3 through 9. It's a little bit long. Bear with me. I'm going to read it for you. Haggai 2, 3 through 9. Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage. Zerubbabel, now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of armies. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Do not fear, for this is what the Lord of armies says, once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with all the wealth of the nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of armies. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of armies. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of armies. He's telling them, don't worry about it. I am still with you and trust me. Again, there's that idea of trusting in the promises of God. Don't worry about what it looks like today. My glory is here and it's going to be greater than it was before. That's a foretelling of Jesus and what Jesus Christ is going to do for us when he returns. And the spirit of God is in us. We are his temple now. And that glory is far greater than any building could possibly be. 
All right, so let's wrap this up. What's our takeaway from all this? I always like to take, okay, there's a ton of scripture. There's a ton of history and, and things that are going on. What can we take away from this? This is where I sit down and I pray to God. And I'm like, Lord, given all this, what am I supposed to relay to, to your people? What am I supposed to focus in on? And it was very clear. This one was very, very clear. But before I do that, I want to get some of your answers. What? Throw up a hand. We're, we're informal here. You can throw up a hand and tell me, what, what is your takeaway? Given what we just learned through the scripture, what would you take away from this? What's resonating in your heart right now? Anyone? Take turns, not all at once. I know it's hard, but I know that there are things that is in your heart. Like, this is what's jumping out to me. Anybody? Yeah. It's not the building that matters. Yeah. It's, it's God's spirit with you, right? Anybody else? Yeah. Kind of remembering what you said about the authority, when you really start to understand um, <coughs> where you need to head with the Lord yeah. and take that stand, the, 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 the resistance from the enemy can be so overwhelming. Yeah. But it's just intimidation. That's all it is. And I guess my encouragement is to continue to stand in that authority in Christ because you will. Amen. Amen. Perfect. Anybody else? Yeah. I was just encouraged because those people heard the Haggai prophet, and so they believed, so they went on in the strength yeah. uh, that they were actually given that the Spirit would be there for them. So yeah. it was for them, but then you painted the picture of how it affects us and how that applies to us. Yeah. And what we know now of right. how it came. Because they didn't know what was going to happen with Christ then, right? The circle. Yeah. And they had no idea that the temple would be a person. Yeah. But they took it for what it was said, and then they... They really established Israel again yeah. to be where God was. But what a tenuous moment right there where they're going, the elders are saying like, this is nothing. God's not even here. Why are we doing this? And then to have God speak through his prophets. One thing is that they're looking back at the glory of the temple they remember, but that temple they remember was thoroughly corrupt. It was a pagan temple. Yeah. Yeah. You had to become that, yeah. Before the exile. That's a great way. The thing that they were looking for and longing for was corrupt to begin with. Yeah, that's, that's good. All right, those are great, those are great answers. Um, here's what I want to take away from this. And again, you, you've all got your own ideas. This is what the Lord showed me. If you've been paying attention to the previous chapters, we see that there's this, this trend uh, of God always being faithful to fulfill his promises. No matter what happens before, during, or after, God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Um, and if you see in your life, if you can point to places in your life where God has been faithful to you. I needed, I needed rent money because I didn't have it. I prayed for it and something showed up. I felt sick, so I was praying for healing. And I feel like I was mostly healed, but maybe not all. 
if you see that God has been faithful to you, but you're not completely, thoroughly happy with the way that he did it. Do you know what I mean when I say that? He provided rent for me, but I'm still short my car payment. He provided health for me, but my leg still hurts a little. He provided a new home for me, but it's not quite as big and nice as I was hoping for. If that's you, you may be afflicted by a spirit of pride. Pride is the most devious spirit that there is. And, and when I say spirit, it's a demon. The spirit of pride is a demon spirit. And he afflicts you in ways that'll surprise you sometime. It's made, the bottom line, the spirit of pride is made to make you an instrument of spreading discontent and dissatisfaction, spreading it to others, letting it seep into your heart so you're suddenly discontented and dissatisfied with everything in your life, and it just spreads like a disease. Pride can trick you into thinking that if you were God, you'd do it differently. If you were God, you'd do it a little better. That's what the spirit of pride does. Matthew Henry said this, a, a, a theologian said this, He said, let not the remembrance of former afflictions drown out the sense of present mercies. Now, if it were me, if it were me, I'd rewrite it like this. I would add this to it. Let not the remembrances of either former afflictions or former glories drown the sense of present mercies. Anybody here look at the good old days? I remember when I had that job that gave me more than enough money and I had enough to do all of the things that I wanted to do and where'd that go? Now I'm not there anymore. I remember when I was younger and man, I could play football or I could run, I could do all these things. I was so healthy and where'd that go? I'm not in that place now. I remember when we used to live in this other place and I had so many friends and now I'm in this new place that I feel like God called us here, but I don't know anybody Either former afflictions or former glories can lead us down that path, that same path. We're comparing our present situation to what's going on, to to what happened in the past. Again, either good or bad. And they're both a trap of the enemy. They both produce the same bad fruit. It's comparison and it's doubting what God's doing with you now. God doesn't want you to look back at what was, unless you're celebrating what was. He wants you to be content with what is today. If we can find ourselves, like Paul said, to be content in every situation, you take away one of the major tools that the enemy uses, is that comparison. He wants to steal your peace, steal your contentment. When I look at our world today, it's so tempting And some of you, I know that some of you are in the same boat. It's so tempting to think that God has forgotten us or is somehow punishing us for our sins as a nation. It's very, very easy and tempting to think that, letting us reap the consequences of our sin. But this is why we study books like this one. This is why we spend time in Old Testament scripture, which is just 
Rather than call it Old Testament, I would just call it a book of promises. We see that while God will absolutely let us suffer the consequences of the choices that we make, that he is faithful to already have a path and a plan of restoration. He is always faithful to protect those things he calls holy. And he calls you holy. Second Chronicles 7.13 tells us that our part in all this, our part in the restoration, being faithful to be protected and, and, and restored by God is dependent mostly on us doing one thing. It starts with an R. It's repent. We need to repent of where we have been, where our hearts are sometimes today, and he will take it from there. All he needs is our repentance. So 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14 go like this. Verse 13, if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send a plague among my people. Verse 14, this is the one many of you will recognize. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. That's what the word repentance means. Turn away. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. He's talking about us, folks. So I want to ask you as we close up this message, when's the last time that you repented? When's the last time that you repented and humbled yourself before the sovereign God of trying to take things into your own hands, of lamenting the way that things are and not trusting in a sovereign God that has always and will always have your best at heart? When's the last time you did that? In just a few minutes, your answer is going to be today. Because if you will, as we close today, I want us all to repent before God for those things that we've been doing, those things we've been thinking, those doubts that we've had, those accusations we've made against either the leadership of our, of our country, and yes, it doesn't matter who the leadership is, and repenting of thinking somehow we know better than what God is doing. You've all got that one thing or maybe a couple things, maybe some of you will be unrolling a scroll of things we need to do. But as I pray here, I want you to, you can follow along with me, but think about those things that you know right now the Holy Spirit is impressing in your heart that I need you to repent of this because it starts here. It starts with us. It starts in our homes, in our backyards, and then it can spread to a nation. If we get a nation who repents and falls to their knees and said, Lord, we have gone down a path that is not what you would have us do. We have gone down a path that is not our calling as your chosen people. If we repent and truly humble ourselves, that would be magnetic to those people from the outside looking in, and they'll say, what do they have? I want that. And God is faithful. He will heal our land. So we have, um, in the back, we will have prayer team. You'll know them. Usually they have a lanyard on there in the back. If you need prayer for anything else at this time, healing, or anything else in your life, go back there and speak to them. They'll be back there during worship also. Um, I want to remind you again of the prayer starting next week at 930. 
get here before half hour early if you want to join us just to corporately pray for this church, pray for our nation, pray for whatever is on our hearts at that point. <coughs> and then after that, because I'm going to pray last here, we'll go into communion. We'll have two stations. We'll have the one over here and the one over here where we'll serve wine and bread and crackers. And if you're new here, you just dip the bread into the wine and take it like that. You don't have to be a member. You don't have to be anything other than a follower of Jesus. You have to say, he is my Lord and Savior. And if you can say that, we invite you to take communion with us. And then in the back by the door, we've got self-serve. If you want juice or you want to serve yourself, you can do that. But take advantage of the time to pray. And just because my prayer is over and we move into communion, if you need to stay there and just wrangle with the Lord for a while and submit your will to his, take all the time that you need. But let's do that and pray right now. Heavenly Father, first, we are thankful. We are so thankful for the things that you have given us, the things that you have provided for us. We are thankful for your son, Jesus, through whom we are reconciled to you no matter where we've been in the past. We are made new through Jesus, and we are so thankful for that. But Lord, we also come before you today in humility, and we repent of those things where we have not trusted you. I repent of those things that I have done that don't line up with your word, that you are faithful and you are good and that leadership is established by you and that you will use all things for the good of those who trust in you. I repent of those times where I have thought I know better. And if I just do more of this or less of that, or blame my brother or my sister for not doing what I think they should be doing. Blame your children throughout the world for not holding up their end of the stick while I'm full well holding up mine. Lord, I repent of not trusting you and of judging, judging others. Father, I pray that you restore my household. You restore my faith and my trust and my humility. Lord, I give it to you. And I trust and I praise you in advance that through starting with me, starting with my heart and my household, then you will be faithful to your promise and you will heal our land. But it starts with me. So Lord, I lay it all out to you. Take those parts of me that don't belong there, tear them away from my spirit and throw them in the dumpster. They don't belong they don't belong in my spirit. I am called to be a reflection of who Jesus is to this world. So Lord, anything that I do or say or think that is not a worthy reflection of your son Jesus who gave it all for us, Lord, I just pray that those things fall to the wayside and I repent of ever partnering with those spirits. Father, I praise you. I trust you and I love you. And I give it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.